You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, where we'll kind of jump out of this morning. We are now into our uh, fourth week of our series, What We Believe, uh, the Truths of the Faith, uh, it's talking on going through our doctrinal statement, which may not sound like a real exciting sermon series, but just hoping to get uh, at least one time through and, and uh, the doctrinal statement to understand, hopefully, uh, the importance of this statement and the, the accessibility of it, but also the just the wisdom of it and the benefit of it. So this morning we are in our fourth week. If you want to have the whole doctrinal statement, I'll just say again, we've got some printouts of the, the full doctrinal statement with the church covenant on the back. It's in a single folder. There should be some copies out on the table, and you're welcome to grab one there. If they aren't any there, let me know. I can get you a copy that you can just take home and have very easily uh, readable for you. And then there also is an expanded version that has all the scriptures uh, that back up what we're saying in our doctrinal statement. So I think there are still some folders out on the, on the table that go through all the passages of Scripture that back up this statement. If you want to take that home for a study tool, um, they are there for you. So Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17 will be our text that just start us off this morning, fairly familiar. But uh, this is Matthew 16, page 977 of your pew Bible. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. This pivotal moment happens here at Caesarea Philippi, the disciples, this hits this hits dead center in the Gospel of Mark. If you want to split Mark, it's in 16 chapters. And right there, Mark chapter 8 is kind of this, this climactic moment of this revelation of the disciples of who Jesus really is. This is the kind of the first declaration of this realization. It's why Peter is blessed and commended. is because they have this realization that Jesus is the Christ. And he's asking them, he's pressing on them. Who do you say that I am? Peter makes his confessions commended for it, even though really it's the Father. He says that you've not, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. It wasn't through Peter's own reasoning or his own logic that he figured this out, but that God had revealed this to him, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, just giving him Divinity. He is like his father. He is divine. He is this Christ, this coming Jewish Messiah. 
this human Messiah they expected to come, and yet this interesting confession that though he is the Christ, he is also the son of the living God. Who do we say Jesus is? This is what our fourth point in our doctrine is. It's just, it's just simply titled Jesus Christ. But if you're going to broaden that out, it might be the person of Jesus Christ, the reality, the personhood of Jesus Christ. Who do you say Jesus is? And it makes all the difference in our Christianity of who we say Jesus is. 1 John 4, 2 says that, Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And contrarily, everyone who says Christ has not come in the flesh is speaking of the Antichrist. So it's very important, John's really upping the ante there, that if you are going to be uh, uh, coming with, with God, if you are filled with God's spirit, then you are going to be confessing that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, you might ask, well, isn't that common to do really like with, with every religious leader? Don't, don't, doesn't every religious group kind of deify their leader? But not really. No. We are, we are unique in contrast to many other world religions in this idea that Jesus is not just a very elevated teacher. He's not just very wise. He's not just blessed by God. Jesus is God. So like in contrast, you could take Muhammad um, and, and the Islamic faith. And Muhammad comes on the scene there and, and really the, the Islamic faith rises up. But Muhammad is never seen as God. He's a prophet of God. He speaks for God. He's very revered uh, in the Islamic faith, but he's never seen as God. God, the, the one true God, their monotheistic religion, has God very specifically, and then Muhammad is his prophet. And that would be the confession you would make, actually, if you were going to be Islamic. If you're going to be Muslim, you're going to say there is one God, uh, and Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. They're different people. So even the, the leader of the Islamic faith is not God, he's, he's a prophet. You might think of the Jewish faith, Abraham, the father of the faith. Abraham is this highly elevated, you know, the descendants of Abraham, this, this highly exalted figure, but in no way is Abraham ever thought of as being God even Moses, who would lead the people out of Egypt and, and the rescue of the, the Jewish people out of their bondage and slavery in Egypt. Moses is a great prophet who speaks for God. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, coming from through Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament coming from Moses' hand. He's very revered, but he's never thought of to be God. You can think about Gandhi, and as elevated as a figure as Gandhi is and respected, he's never, never pretends to be God, someone who might speak spiritual truth, but not God. Even Buddha, in, Buddha in, the, in the Buddhist religion, you don't really even have to believe that Buddha actually existed. Like there's some question of whether the, the figure that they now, we now call Buddha, if he ever really had a real existence. Uh, and, and if you were a, a, a Buddhist who knows your religion, it doesn't really even matter because it's the life principles that come from Buddha that are, that are important, not his actual existence. And it wasn't, and Buddhism doesn't really have a, 
a theistic religion. They don't have a God anyway. I mean, everything is God. and so it, it, but, but they don't have this exalted figure. So Christianity is unique in our saying that Jesus, this man who walked the earth, is not just some elevated figure, but no, he's actually God in human flesh. He is God incarnate. All of those men, all of them incredible leaders, founders of their faith, but none of them claimed divinity for themselves. And that is what we say about Jesus, and that's why it makes all the difference in our Christianity. Here's what our statement of faith has to say about Jesus. Here's the paragraph. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. End of paragraph. So the main, the main idea, the ultimate importance is this confession that God, Jesus is God in the flesh. The word we use there is incarnate. Um, it's a fancy word for just meaning in flesh, uh, incarnate. It's, it's, it's in, in a, an earth suit. God, Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what this phrase incarnate means. It's fundamental to our faith. Now, there undoubtedly is mystery here. So when we talk about how does the eternal God, Jesus, who existed before anything ever existed, how does that God enter into space, time, and history? Well, he's outside. Of, he made time, and yet somehow he enters into time and is crucified. We know it's in time because he's crucified by Pontius Pilate. I mean, it's actual space, time, history. How does that happen? <laughs> Well, it, that's going to be hard to explain. That's going to be hard to explain. There's undoubtedly mystery here. And we discussed this briefly with the Trinity. How do you really figure on the Trinity? We have a monotheistic religion, one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Do we have three gods? No, we have one God in three persons, one in being, in essence, three in personhood. And we confess the Trinity, not because we sat around and thought, well, let's try to make the most sense of this we can make. Okay, we're going we're gonna to create a doctrine called the Trinity because that's just what we think makes sense. No, the Trinity is, is, comes from the necessity of reading your Bible. And we read in our Bibles the reality that there is only one true God. Behold, the Lord our God is one. There is only one true God. You shall have no other gods before me. We know clearly there is one God. Yet we read in our Bibles and we see Jesus is referred to as God. We see the distinction between Jesus who prays to the Father, who is anointed by the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit referred to as God. The Father referred to as God. Jesus is referred to as God. But yet we know there's one God. And so it's a formulation that has come because our Bibles have demanded it. And so we, there's mystery involved there, but this is what our Bible tells us. Well, this is the same reality that comes, reality that comes to us when we talk about the nature of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is both 
truly, fully human and fully divine. Jesus is both truly human and truly God in one person. He's truly God, truly man in one person. And the reason why we confess that is because our Bibles demand it. This is, this is what is revealed to us in the pages of Scripture. So we can flip around. I hope you have your Bible and want to do a little Bible work. I'll get your fingers warmed up if they're cold in here this morning. Because we're going to flip around a little bit. Jesus, we see this reality that he is truly human. We see this in various places in the gospel. Luke chapter 2, verse 7, I mean, just obviously, uh, we know the narrative here. This is our Christmas narrative. Verse 7, and she gave, I should have Angie read it. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Jesus was human in that he's actually born. He actually had to get wrapped in cloths and laid somewhere because he really was a human. I mean, it wasn't like he magically was beamed into the world as this perfect angelic child. Um, it was a real birth. They had to use cloths. They had to clean him. You know, those of you who have been through it, Jesus was really human. And he cried and lay there and he had to get fed and that was a reality. Jesus was born. Now, albeit he was virgin conceived, so that's a little different than all the rest of us, affirmed also from the Gospel of Luke, but he was still truly human. He had humanity to him. We could go on to verse 52 in chapter 2. It talks about Jesus grew and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, Jesus, this is after the temple episode, kind of the last, after this, this is the last um, event we hear in the youth of Jesus where he's gone to the temple and he stays after in the temple learning, teaching, really the Pharisees, they can't find him, comes back and uh, he's submissive to his parents. That sounds very human. Jesus listened to his parents and he increases in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus learned Grew up, just like we do. Jesus was human. We could go to John chapter 4. Fascinating when you think about the Savior of the world. John chapter 4, verse 6. Just as flat out about the reality. There's this, he's at the well uh, outside of Samaria. You know the story, the woman at the well. And uh, he comes to a town, verse 5, of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Jesus got tired. That's weird to think about. But, but the Bible is, is giving us this reality that Jesus was human. He got weary. He, he's going along and he gets tired. We see this um, clearly from uh, Matthew chapter 8 uh, is the story of the boat on the storm. And you know the story because we love to tell it. Mean, where's Jesus in the middle of the storm in the boat? What's Jesus? Is he freaking out with the disciples trying to bail out the water? He's asleep in the back of the boat. Now there's lots of things we could go on about that. But one of the reality is Jesus had to sleep. He'd ministered all day. He'd worked all day healing people, you know, ministering to people, and he was tired. Jesus had a physical, he was human. 
He was fully human. He slept. He got hungry. We read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, the temptation. He goes in the wilderness, fast for 40 days. And believe it or not, when he got done, he was hungry. Jesus had an appetite. He knows what it's like to be hungry. Um, lastly, one I want you to look up with me is John 11, verse 35. Um, Shortest verse in the Bible, maybe you know that, uh, John eleven thirty five. 35. Verses aren't divinely inspired, so that doesn't really matter, but it's a fun trivia question. Uh, John eleven thirty five. but this is the death of Lazarus, verse 34. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see, verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus knew grief. Now, it's fascinating because Jesus knows he's going to go raise Lazarus from the dead, here in just a few moments, but yet still, in his humanity, Jesus is not unfamiliar with grief. He knows what it's like to be grieved. Likely lost his father Joseph at some point between 12 and 30, so he knows what it's like to lose a parent. He knows what it's like to, to see a friend die. He, he, knows, he knows grief. He was truly human. Wasn't just some... God figure pretending to be human. He really was human. Jesus knows what it's like to be human, and there can be a great comfort in that. Every suffering, every temptation, every struggle that you know, Jesus knows. Now, has he gone through every exact uh, event that we've gone through? No, this, but don't, don't take viewpoint epistemology on this. It, it, this is, but Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to grieve. He is not unfamiliar with your pain. I mean, I hate to spend too much time on it, but you want to kind of camp on there a little bit because we often feel like God is this distant, far-off figure who is unrelatable, and we're just trying to kind of appease the gods or whatever, this, this distant, far-off figure but, but and we see in this humanity of Jesus that Jesus really became a man, really suffered, really got hungry, really got tired, really wept, really grieved over things that he knows what sorrow is. He is not unfamiliar with your pain. Jesus also is an accurate example to live by. He was a human. He shows us what a righteous life should look like. Yet in all of this, Jesus was without sin. Fully God, fully man, one person in two natures. He lived, though, a sinless life. And this is a very important point. Jesus was truly like us in his humanity, but truly distinct from us in his sinlessness. In his trial before the council in Mark chapter 14, they're looking does anybody have an accusation against this guy? I mean, they're, they're trying to trump up, trump up charges against him. They finally pay off some people to say, well, he claimed to be God, which is true, so it's not really a thing he did wrong. But they can't find anything wrong with this guy. I mean, and how many of us, even though we might be well-liked in the community, we could probably find somebody to say something bad about us that might even be true. <laughs> but when Jesus gets before his accusers, they got nothing to say about him. He was sinless. He had no wrongdoing. So Jesus is truly God, but truly human, but Jesus is also truly God. John chapter 1 is, I mean, just maybe the most beautiful, well-known, poetic um, uh, text on this reality of Jesus being God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was 
God, was with God and was God. He was in the beginning with God. And this he that he's referring to, we know down in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, or verse Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he's speaking of Jesus is this word. And we have seen his glory, glory as the, of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus has divinity. He is God. He's truly human, yet he also is truly God. At the end of the gospel of John, you know the story of doubting Thomas. Thomas says, well, I won't believe until I can put my fingers in his hands and hold it aside. And because and, and, he wasn't there when Jesus showed up the first time. Well, when he, Jesus does show up, Thomas does. And what's Thomas's exclamation in John chapter 20, verse 28? He says, my Lord and my God. And then John goes on in his gospel to say, I, these things I have written that you might believe. These things I have written so that you might too, because Jesus then goes on to say, blessed are you because you've seen and believed. Blessed indeed are those who believe and have not seen. John says, I've written these things down that you might hear and believe. Believe what? Thomas's confession that Jesus is Lord and God. He's not just a divinely, you know, a, a special man. He's truly man, but he's God. Lord and God. Romans 9, 5 speaks of Christ who is God over all. Titus 2, 13. Hebrews 1, 8. 2 Peter 1, 1. I can give you these passages. We don't have time to go through all of them. But there's these seven really clear passages from the New Testament that just, they just, in black and white, state Jesus is God. Not just another man. Not, not just the offspring of God, but, but God. That title, Son of God, can be very confusing. We do not mean he's the physical descendant of God. He is the role of Son, the position of Son. He is fully God. Luke chapter 2, if you've got your Bible out still. We've been in Luke 2 once already this morning, but back to Luke 2. There's this fascinating confession um, from the angels the, when it speaks about the Jewish Messiah, the, the, they are looking for a, a, a Messiah. They're looking for a figure like David. David was, was this Christ-like figure, right? He's this king who shows up, and, and Israel is the most prosperous it's ever been under, under King David. And so they're looking for this, this man like David, like Solomon, like some of the great kings, not the bad ones, some of the good kings, this figure to show up and and rescue Israel. They're looking for this Messiah, this man. And so they're, that, that's their understanding. They want this, this Christ to show up. But, he's in, but in verse 11, the angels come, verse 10, they say to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. That's good news. All right, the Messiah is coming. Who is this Messiah, this human Savior? He is Christ, the Lord. And that Lord term, there's, there's uh, is it 70? I can't think, I've lost the number now. I've, I've read too many things. There's, but of all the places where, where this Lord is used in the New Testament, there's, there's a specific usage of it that is saying not just, um, you know, you'd call someone like sir is a polite way. Back then you might say, um, Lord, whoever, as a, a pleasantry. 
tell me which way, you know, nice to see you today. Yes, sir. Yes, Lord. You might use it as a pleasantry. But there are these ways that it is used when it's referring to this Old Testament figure of Yahweh, the Lord. Great is the Lord. And the way that the angels are using this, the way that Luke is relaying it to us, is with that kind of language. So they're saying this man who you're expecting to show up, the Savior's born, he's here. Here's the, here's, the, here's the trip. It's Christ the Lord. God has shown up. God has put on, has added to himself humanity and has come to save us. Our doctrinal statement affirms what has been held by the church in clear language. I think it's been believed, but there, there, there's lots of trying to figure out what's going on. But in Chalcedon, the, the, Council of Cal, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, out of it comes this Chalcedonian creed. I commend it to you. But they, they, they kind of uh, solidify the understanding of this doctrine. This is held not because we've invented some neat doctrine to confuse everyone, but out of the necessity of what scriptures tell us about Jesus, truly man, yet truly God. Not half divine and half man, because that, that's, that's, the, that's the heresy of Apollinarianism, that he was half God, half man, to make one man, and that the, the natures were split. That is, that's, that's, a, that's a heresy that was condemned. He's not two persons in one physical body. Uh, that's Nestorianism. There's no, Jesus isn't at some point trying to like argue with himself. Like divine Jesus wants to do this and human Jesus wants to do this. And so they're having an argument. There's none of that going on. He's, he's one person with two divine natures. He's also not a mixture of the natures. Like, you know, it's like you just, you just kind of all mixed in there together. Um, that is not, that's another heresy called monophysitism. But the scriptures tell us Jesus was human. Jesus was God. All of these problems that we've talked about, these just quickly, these heresies, uh, they, they all work out problems as, as you take them to their conclusions. All we can state is what scripture affirms. Does this tell us all that we'd like to know on how it actually works? No, and I would argue it's tough to figure out how our finite minds are going to figure out how the infinite added to himself humanity in one of the persons of the triune Godhead. That's going to make you go cross-eyed. I mean, trying to figure that out is going to be difficult, but it does tell us enough to make affirmative statements on this confession. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Main application from this doctrine is this. Jesus had to be human so that he could represent us. We needed someone like us to be able to represent us. Someone who's able to represent us. He had to be also divine in order to give us any real meaningful help. As a text that we looked at last week in Romans chapter 5, remember talking about the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam comes and death enters the world there in Romans chapter 5. The second Adam comes and he brings life. But he has to be another Adam, but different. In Romans 5, 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, speaking of the first Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the, man, the first Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the second Adam, the many will be made righteous. First Adam, 
second Adam. We need another Adam. This Adam who was sent down, the first Adam, to obey God failed. He did not succeed in the mission that God had for him. He rebelled. And so we need a representative, another Adam, who succeeds. Because all of us didn't fit the bill either. <laughs> we, we covered that in our sinful condition, the, nature, the, the human condition. None of us fit the bill. But Jesus comes and he does fulfill all righteousness. But if he wasn't human, that doesn't really make any difference. Because he's not one of us. He's something different than us. But he is us. He is like us in that he was fully human. Do you see the necessity that Jesus be truly human? We need a human representative, someone to stand between us and God. But that someone standing between us needs to represent us, be like us in our humanity, but different from us because if, if any one of us were to be an advocate for the other before the God... We might get before the judge and say, well, I'm here to argue the case. And they say, state your name. And you'd give God your name. He'd say, well, your rap sheet's just as long as theirs. Why don't you sit down? You're on, the, you're on trial too. <laughs> and then somebody else comes forward. Okay, I'll, st I'll advocate for them. What's your name? And they give you your name. And well, your rap sheet, yeah, it's, I mean, we have no righteous advocate. We need someone like us, yet different from us, in that he's able to actually represent us. On our doctrinal statement, Jesus is said to be our high priest and advocate. And one of the places where that language comes from is the book of Hebrews. If you've got time this afternoon, look and read just the, the, the beginning there of Hebrews specifically, but the whole book's great. But talking about this reality of Jesus as our high priest. We'll look just at chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. It says, Since therefore the children... Share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, speaking of Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of the death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The necessity of Jesus to become a man so that he could suffer death for us. Deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Had to take on humanity. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation wrath-appeasing sacrifice, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We need a representative who is like us. That's what enables representation. He's like us. But we need a representative that isn't like us because we need rescue by someone who's capable of actually bringing it. If you move on into Hebrews chapter 3, Jesus as this greater Moses, worthy of all of the glory and all of the honor. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also is faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. Verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant 
to testify to the things that are being spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, here's, here's an application. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test, saw my works for 40 years. There I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. Jesus is greater than Moses, this great man, this great prophet. He is God in human flesh. He's the high priest of our confession. He is worthy of greater glory. This morning, do not harden your heart against him as they did in the rebellion, but believe Jesus is a perfect human just like us in our humanity and therefore able to relate to us, represent us, yet the perfect God and therefore able to truly save us which is the next doctrine that we'll get into next week. But Christ is able, truly, truly man, yet truly God. Trust him today. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see and hearts rejoicing. What a, what a miracle this is. I know we talk about the miracle of birth, and it is, it is amazing any time um, a child is born. It's an incredible how, that, how, how you bring about new life. But here is a, is a miracle <laughs> where the, the infinite, the divine, broke into space and time, put on flesh, truly human, yet truly God. God, help us this morning to rejoice. You had a a real body that was able to be broken, real blood that was able to be shed so that you could be our real representative. But at the same time, God in the flesh, sinless, righteous, so that what you did could truly save. That is worthy of worship. And God, provoke it in our hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.